0: Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztraumer. On today's show, Tech, Immigration, and the RAISE Act. The RAISE Act was introduced in January, uh, but it didn't get too much play until recently when uh, it was rewritten and President Trump put his uh, support behind the bill. Um, And we did an episode previously about H-1B visas. uh, So we're going to now update you on the situation with tech and immigration and uh, what this bill could mean for immigration and the tech sector. Joining me to discuss this, we got two great guests. Uh, Alex Narasta, Immigration Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute. Alex, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. And I've heard you many times on the Cato podcast, which was uh, certainly an inspiration for this program. <laughs> and uh, we've got uh, Graham Owens, Legal Fellow at Tech Freedom. Graham, this is your first podcast.
1: It is. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. I mean, you know, we're basically obligated. <laughs> we're basically obligated to have our own staff on the show because otherwise it would be awkward. Um, So, Alex, can you give me just like the high-level summary of this bill? I mean, what does it do? What what sorts of changes will this make to our current immigration system?
2: So the big changes are that it significantly cuts family reunification, the number of green cards available for them, Uh, the diversity visa, which is basically 50,000 green cards a year allocated by lottery to people from countries that don't send many immigrants to the U.S., and it cuts refugees to just 50,000 a year going forward. It does not increase the number of skills-based um, immigrants or green cards at all. Uh, what it also does is for the remaining sort of skills-based immigration system, what the U.S. currently has called the employment-based system, it would basically be the same thing. Um, it would sort of get rid of the current procedures and replace it with a point system. So if you reach a certain number of points and you get points based on if you speak English, how your age, younger the better, level of education, uh, and some other factors that are determined by uh, Congress, then you're able to get in. The current system, it's basically employment sponsorship. Right. So it replaces that, but it doesn't increase the numbers at all. It just cuts family, immigration, and other categories. So it looks like high-skilled immigrants – are a higher proportion of the future flow under raise which is what it would be but it doesn't actually increase skilled immigration at all
0: and that was the uh, the bill's sponsors and the people supporting the bill have said that this is an effort to move the united states away from a random like the lottery system or the family system where essentially relatives can get green cards over a certain period of time and there's been criticism from many mostly republicans who say like oh once you get one person here then they want to bring the whole family um, but you've pointed out that it's not actually increasing skills based. So all this does is really just change the proportion. So when people look at the immigration as a whole, they'll say now more skills based immigration as a part of the whole, but not actually higher numbers.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And when selling this, they talk about the merit-based system, they people point to Canada, to Australia to other developed nations that do emphasize skills. But what they always leave out is that the flow of immigrants to these countries annually as a percentage of their populations is substantially greater than what it is annually in the United States. So to give you an example, about zero immigrants annually to the U.S. are equal to about 0.3% of our population every year. In Australia, it's uh, more than one percent annually. In Canada, it's about zero point eight percent. So each of these and that big difference is largely made up for by a number of skilled workers. So in uh, you know in Canada, there's somewhere around nine times as many uh, workers who are allowed skilled workers allowed into the country as a percentage of their population as in the United States, and about thirteen times in Australia. And what's interesting is these countries have bigger systems. They don't allow the big family-based immigration that the U.S. does. But because they allow in so many more workers, the percentage, the, 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 the percentage of family immigrants annually to Australia and Canada as a percentage of their population is actually greater than it is in the United States. Okay, And people always leave that out when they talk about the merit-based or skills-based system. Oh, yeah, it's an I mean, inconvenient fact. Why,
0: why let uh, facts get in the way of your narrative, of course? I mean, that would be silly. Now, um, the reaction from the tech industry has not necessarily been uniform, uh, but I'd like to get both of your thoughts on this. I mean, in general, this is one of the major areas of conflict between Both candidate and President Trump and the tech industry, right? The tech industry has talked about the importance of H1Bs, the importance of high skilled immigration, um, the inadequacy of the American workforce for certain things. And there's a larger debate to be had about the education system, but they often say, look, we can fix education, but in the meantime, we got jobs to fill. Um, but you know, some of the um, Indian workers who use the H-1B system, uh, CNBC reported they're not opposed to this bill because they're saying, look, we uh, we might actually appreciate a more merit-based system. But then you've got the uh, ITI, the Information Technology Industry Council, uh, coming out against this, uh, TechNet saying this is just a bigger indicator that we need STEM. I mean, what is your sense of how this bill would impact the tech industry?
2: So one thing that's been forgotten or maybe not talked about in this and I would like to hear what the uh, H-1B workers have to say about this is one year after this goes into effect if the Raise Act becomes law the, all the people who are currently in the green card backlog for the employment based system are kicked out of the backlog. They're given a handful of points to try to re-enter but they're not allowed to stay in the United States and work while they're waiting for it. So you've got about 500,000 H-1B workers who, if you recall, it's a six-year visa, three years, once renewable. After that, if you're in line for a green card, you can get a one-year extension year by year. It removes the ability to get that one-year extension by kicking out all of the current employment-based green card, which means about an estimated 500,000 current H-1B workers who are waiting for their green card now would be removed within a year of this bill being enacted into law. So I'm curious what those H-1B workers (laughs) would think about this bill knowing that fact.
0: We keep saying that it would be so impractical to do mass deportation of illegal immigrants, but now it sounds like we'd be doing mass deportation of legal immigrants. Now, Graham, before you made the horrible mistake of deciding to work for Tech Freedom, you actually used to work in Congress uh, on the Immigration Committee. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was a staffer for about a little over three years with the House Judiciary Committee's subcommittee on immigration and border security um, under Trey Gowdy as chairman. so. So, So
0: you've seen this issue develop over the years. Are you surprised that this is where we've ended up? Have there been other Attempts at um, creating a more merit-based system, or doing things that would benefit high-skilled industries, or is have we just been on a road to this for a long time now?
1: I think it's a long time coming. Not not that it's any the idea itself is not new, as we pointed out earlier. UK, Canada, Australia, there are other countries in the world that have implemented this, and to some uh, extent, some would say, to some good success. Um, And I know a lot of congressmen and hearings have. spoken to implementing a points-based system to, you know, like I said, bring the best and the brightest here and really focus it to growing our economy. Um, but I think the interesting aspect of that whole debate that we've always seen is that, you know, there's a unique aspect of the United States history and our and how we um, handle immigrants and in our, our you know, we have Ellis Island and Statue of Liberty and give us your poor. And so there's always sort of this, um, there's the economic aspect of immigration, but there's also sort of the, what we'll call the heart. Aspect, the humanitarian, uh, the humanitarian aspect, aspect. Yeah. exactly, and I think um, that's really where we differ from those countries, and, I, and and having to address that with the economic is is certainly been, I think, the the stalemate, if you will, between the two sides getting to a system that works.
2: And what's often forgotten in this debate also is just because you come on a family reunification green card doesn't mean that you're low-skilled necessarily. What we've seen over the decades is that the U.S., the annual immigrants admitted to the U.S. are becoming on average more and more skilled, just like the U.S. workforce is becoming more and more skilled over time. So such that between 2013 and 2016, uh, about 40% of the new green cards admitted had at least a college education, which is much more than the 14% of green cards allocated for employment-based skilled workers in the United States. And that's because a lot of family members, you know, if you're the brother of a high-tech worker who came over, got a green card, got citizenship, is able to sponsor you, you know, families are pretty similar to each other. And a lot of their siblings um, have these skills, and people marry people like them, so their wives and spouses have skills. And when they sponsor their siblings, Their siblings are similarly educated, and we've seen this over time. As immigration has shifted, the source of immigrants has shifted from Latin America to Asia, and it has since about 2009, and it's continuing to go in that direction, the flow of green card coming into the United States on any category is becoming more and more skilled. So we are de facto moving toward a merit-based system under our current system, which is not really based on that at all.
0: Without implementing a point system, though, now, is there anything inherently wrong with a point system? I've got to point out one of my favorite internet memes that came out of this bill was people, American citizens, taking a test online that uh, essentially would indicate whether they could get into the country under the Rays Act. And there was some hilarious uh, Facebook statuses that came out of this where people would be like, all right, I've got a master's degree. I make Less than a hundred thousand dollars, and all these other things, and I failed to meet all twenty three. I got twenty one, right? Or like, I've lived here my whole life. I've done everything imaginable that is considered good, and I still don't make it. So essentially, was this designed to fail? Absolutely. Graham, would you? Yeah, uh...
2: I, yeah I, I failed it. So
0: <laughs> well, maybe we should fire you. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, we should have a test to see who's allowed to come on the podcast. There,
1: there wasn't an uh, option for grad school for law school, so I. I'd... Didn't know what to select, like there. I think that's okay. what God yeah. knows the country doesn't need more lawyers, <laughs> <Exactly>. right?
2: <laughs> I mean, what are the, one of the issues with the – there's nothing inherently wrong with points-based or a merit-based system, but it depends how you assign those points. And the people in Congress are going to be the ones choosing what gets points. So if you choose incorrectly – if you choose poorly if you choose to such a level of granularity that you like you know occupation x over occupation y
0: picking winners and losers
2: yeah it can have a very uh, negative effect because one of the great things about a point space system that's big that's sort of broad but doesn't get too specific is that it can change over time. The type of people who decide to come here can change over time based on the demands of the U.S. economy. We don't know what sectors are going to be huge in 20, 25 years, and it's really hard to pass immigration. But if you have a merit-based system that's so specific that it's to the occupation level like it is in Australia, um, then the system's non-adaptable. But if it's broad-based, then it is, it can adapt. And the system proposed by Cotton and them um, Yeah, this is Senator Cotton sort of in the from, middle.
0: Yeah, Senator Cotton from uh, Arkansas, right? Yeah. And he uh, he's one of the sponsors of this bill. Now, Graham, when you were on the Immigration Committee, or not on the committee because you were not a member of Congress, you worked for the committee. Got to get our uh, words here correct. Um, did you hear from stakeholders, whether it was the tech industry or others, that had – Specific things to say about these are the things you should award points for, like this is specifically what we need to grow our industry. Like, how granular do companies get? And is that one of the problems with the point based
1: system is that it essentially opens the door for special interests to just capture the system? I think what we heard from uh, particularly Silicon Valley, the tech industry, was really they're generally not in favor of the point system, kind of for the reason you said that. It, it doesn't allow the market to choose what they need, whereas an employer-based system allows the employer to go out and find the employees they need at that moment, right? And so it's more flexible, more fluid. Um, and, and their proposals were really um, – I know uh, Representative ISA introduced the STEM Visa Act, um, which would have increased – the uh, like doubled the number of STEM visas uh, for science, technology, engineering, and math – um, and, and there are many more proposals, and that's really what they were looking for. Um, I know that there, the other option that we've heard a lot of is the idea of a startup visa, and that is uh, something that the Natu- National Venture Capital Association has backed and spoken uh, great lengths about, um, and essentially, you know, that would separate, uh, be separate from H-1B and other high school visas, and specifically look for entrepreneurs, um, and some startling statistics um, at the NVCA conference, they talked to, like, Almost 50% of startups have at least one immigrant founder. The U.S. used to have, or I think it was U.S. constituted 90% of capital investments in the world and startups, and now we're about 54%. And a lot of venture capitalists and and Silicon Valley folks are are blaming a lot of that on the rhetoric and and the way that immigrants feel about our country, as well as just the the length and time, the lack of... uh, transparency in the process, just general frustrations in the process in general. So, you know, I don't I didn't hear much from them about a points based system um, because they really want to kind of move in this direction.
0: Um, Is there anything that could make this bill good for the tech industry, Alex, or just for good for America in general? Or is it just like scrap it and start over?
2: I'd scrap it and start over. I mean, the bill starts. There's your softball question. (laughs) Yeah. And that's my softball answer. Uh (laughs) I'd, I'd scrap in and start over. I mean, the intent of the bill is to cut legal immigration. I've talked with Senator Purdue, who's the other sponsor on this, and his staff uh, about this bill. And that's sort of their ultimate goal is to cut legal immigration. They're explicit about it. They're open about it. Um, and this they see as one way to do that uh, without cutting skilled immigration very much. But the interesting thing is because so many skilled immigrants come in on other categories, by default this at minimum – cuts the number of skilled immigrants going forward by about 100,000 a year just by the way that it restructures and limits the numbers uh, going forward. But I'd scrap this bill and start over. I mean, we need to start to recognize that there's, immigration is not like a budget. It's not like we have some number that we have to hit or be below or be above, and we need to consider what's best for the United States economy and the United States of America, and I think that means increasing skilled and in some cases, low-skilled immigration um, without cutting family reunification and these other categories.
0: Now, of course, um, I've heard you on other podcasts, namely the Cato podcast, say, you know, answer the question, how should the United States decide who's allowed to come in? And you gave a great libertarian answer, which is essentially, look, if you're not a criminal, you're not trying to do harm, if you have something to offer, basically anything, you should be allowed in. Uh, The libertarian in me agrees. The pragmatist, would like to point out that that's probably not going to happen, especially in the current climate, but that doesn't mean nothing good could happen. I mean, you know, I, I've uh, talked to folks about NAFTA, and while a lot of people are scared about reconsidering NAFTA, they actually see an opportunity uh, for modernization that might benefit. Is there an opportunity to be had in the immigration debate, or is it just so toxic that the best case scenario would be no action?
2: Likely, the best case scenario is no action for the next two years, uh, at least, But one idea that's been floated uh, by Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from uh, Wisconsin, is the idea of a state-sponsored visa. So it basically would copy Canada. They have a system where provinces sponsor immigrants in addition to the federal system. This would create a uh, non-immigrant visa, an economic visa, uh, but the states would decide the characteristics of this visa. So it could be entrepreneurs, high-tech, low-tech, anything. They decide under federal oversight how many within certain bounds can come to their state. Uh, they can live there and work and through are some enforcement mechanisms. But it basically lets the laboratories of democracy figure out what types of immigrants and what types of migrants are uh, required because it's so different and varied across the United States. So that, I think, is one way that checks a lot of boxes. A lot of Republicans like it because federalism. Yeah, states' rights. States' rights, states' powers. Um, a lot of Democrats uh, will like it because it will allow some states where they have a lot of power to write the immigration laws to protect unions in the way that they want to, to protect certain classes of employees. But also to funnel some undocumented immigrants uh, into sort of a, a legal guest worker visa program and to, to help them out. So I think it checks a lot of boxes. allows a lot of local control. And it gets this debate – really, if it passes outside of D.C. into the country where people know better what's going on than we know here.
1: Graham? Yeah. And and on that point, that that brings up another important issue here is sort of, you know, there's a rural communities in our country are struggling to find doctors that want to practice in. So I'm from Appalachia, right down, down in southwestern Virginia. The cities have plenty of doctors, but um, that type of system would actually allow us to bring a lot of very high skilled and talented immigrants and put them in the communities that need them the most. And I think that's a big aspect that's, that's missing from this uh, bill uh, is not rec- recognizing those needs and, and properly allocating. Um, the immigrants and the resources to where they're most needed.
2: And to make a quick plug for this idea, uh, the two merit-based systems that President Trump praised in January were Canada's and Australia's, both of which have um, immigration systems that allow states in Australia and provinces in Canada to nominate and manage and select um, their own migrants in addition to the federal system.
0: So to close out the show, I'm going to ask you each to, uh, to do two things. One, give me a prediction for the RAISE Act or essentially just like where – what do you think the major date's coming up? Like what can listeners of this program look out for? Um, and then if you have a message, right? Like I like to think that my number one audience for this show is policymakers, right? If there's a single congressional staffer on the immigration committee who's listening to this show and there's anything we could say to them to steer them in a direction that benefits technology, benefits human progress – what would you say to that? But first, your prediction.
2: The Rays Act is dead. I, every Democrat will vote against it, just about, <laughs> handful, maybe two or three exceptions, and at least half of Republicans would be against it.
1: Graham? Definitely dead. In terms of suggestions, I, I think— the one, as, as someone who spent three, almost four years on the subcommittee without passing one real substantive piece of <laughs> yeah, legislation way to under go, the bud. committee, yeah, <laughs> um, not for lack of trying, <laughs> I, I would say to, there's agreement on high school visas. There really is. The, the Democrats and Republicans both know that we need this, that the tech industry needs this to survive, to thrive, to get back to where we, you know, to our, our peak. They've, you know. Forget the the s- internal security measures, the the border stuff. Get this out through because you know each side is really holding on to it as a sort of a leverage piece. Right. Republicans ne- don't want to give it to the Democrats because you know un- unless they get deportation or you know stronger interior enforcement laws. Right. Democrats don't want to sign on to it um, unless there's uh, comprehensive reform. Unless right? they can do it as a part of the comprehensive piece, they, you know, because they they know that um, that's a Businesses point. and tech industry are very um, persuasive to our conservatives. So let it go and just get this through. <laughs> Cause like I said, there is, there is uh, bipartisan support for at least this. And you know, uh, maybe, maybe we'll find some agreement. I, I don't, I'll hold my breath. I won't hold my breath, but, um, <laughs> Alex, final thoughts,
2: uh, a small fix that'll make a big difference. Currently there's 140,000 employment based green cards issued every year. But uh, due to a little-known government memo, not a regulation, but a memo sort of interpreting this, all of their family members count against this 140,000 cap as well. So the real number of skilled workers is about 70,000 a year. There's no legal basis for this in the statute. There's no basis in regulations. This is just a practice that has been going on I think, uh, contrary to the 1990 law that established and expanded this program. So if Congress really wants to make a difference right now without passing a bill, put some pressure on the administration to interpret the law properly, and you double the flow of skilled workers annually.
0: I'll look at that. There's there's your message. So uh, we'll be tracking the the dead raise act on the show to see if it becomes <laughs> undead. Um, and then we will uh, also look to see if there's any administrative actions coming down the pike or just anything else that, uh, that might impact the way that uh, the relationship between uh, immigration and technology. But we'll leave it there. Uh, we are recording this on August 25th, and uh, Alex has a uh, paper coming out today that we'll link to in the show notes. But uh, thank you, Alex Narasta, Immigration Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: And thank you, Graham. Great debut episode. That's Graham Owens. Leave a fellow at Tech Freedom. All right. Thanks, Evan. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Let us know what you think. Uh, Send us an email at at mediatechfreedom.org. Find this podcast on the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening.
2: The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.